Good morning, Moran Park. My name is Chris Beetham. I'm one of the elders uh, here serving uh, at Moran Park. Uh, warm welcome to anybody who may be new this morning. If you are actually new this morning, would you be willing just to put up your hand just a little bit so that the people around you might know that you're new and can welcome you uh, to our church? Don't have to put it up high. Just, just, just high enough that the people next to you uh, know that you are new, so we can, we really just want to welcome you here and get to know you a little bit. Thank you for coming this morning. Well, if you were here or not here last week, we have started a series, a seven-week series, taking a 30,000-foot bird's-eye view of the epic story of Scripture that runs from the beginning in Genesis 1 to the end of the scripture, scriptures, at the very end of the story, Revelation 21, 22. Does anybody remember what we're calling the story? What's the shorthand? Three words. Or four words. From creation to new creation. Maybe that's five words, can't count. <laughs> creation to new creation. Or the long form is the epic story of the mission of God from creation to new creation, but that's way too long to remember. So creation to new creation. And last week I introduced uh, the six chapters or the six acts of the story that we're going to break the series down into. We started at the beginning. All good stories start at the beginning, have a beginning. Start with creation. And then chapter two is what we're calling the fall. I would prefer to call it the, the rebellion, uh, but fall is so woven into our, into our Christianese that we'll keep that. So the fall. Chapter 3 is Israel. And we go into the New Testament. Chapter 4 is the, uh, Jesus. Chapter 5 is the church. Chapter 6 is the new creation. So say it with me. Creation. Fall. Israel. Church. Uh, Jesus. Church, the new creation. We tend to think of the Bible as a bunch of disconnected stories full of morals and uh, talking about good guys and bad guys. We think about Noah and the ark. We think about Adam and Eve in the garden. We think about Abraham and uh, the sacrifice of uh, Isaac. We think of uh, David running away from Saul, uh, David and Goliath. All these as disconnected stories uh, that might teach us how to be good people or be better believers. But Scripture is actually a unified story that has one goal. God creates his world. Humanity manages to bust up that world. And God is relentlessly from henceforth on mission to redeem that world and fulfill his original creations, original intentions for creation that he had in place in Genesis 1. Plan A is still plan A. What God intended to do in Genesis 1, he will accomplish in Revelation 21, 22. Well, what is that plan A? And there is no plan B. What is that plan A? Plan A is that humanity would be fruitful and multiply as the image of God, fill the earth with image bearers who fill the earth with God's glory. Image is image. Images reflect images who, image bearers who know and love God 
and make him known. We introduced story last week, and we introduced what stories do, and we introduced what the mega stories that our world is telling, the questions that they all seek to ask and answer. Do you remember some of those six questions that we all mega stories or all meta narratives or all epic stories seek to answer? Where are we coming from? Right? The big the big questions. Where have we come from? It's the origins of this universe. How did we come to be? Question number two, what does it mean to be human? Who am I? Question three, why is the world so broke? Why is the world so troubled? What's the, what's the root problem? What's the fundamental problem? Four, what's the solution? What's the ultimate solution to that ultimate problem? Where are we going? Question number five. What's the future going to look like? If this is where we've come from, if this is who we are, if this is the problem, if that's the solution, what's the future going to look like? And then question number six, what does that mean for today? If this is the epic story, if this is the true story of all reality that makes sense of my personal story, what does that mean for today? What's it look like then? How then should I live, right? What would it look like to be fully human and flourish in this story? You see, the world is telling us a story, and we have to ask the question, is it true? Right? And Christian scripture offers an alternative, another way of being human. It claims to be the true story of the whole world. And so we have to be wise shoppers, right? We have to be, we have to be um, looking for the, we have to be looking for what makes the most sense, which story makes the most sense of uh, reality, what makes the most sense of our world. And so we comparison shop. We comparison shop. Is the story that the world telling Make the most sense of reality. Proof is in the pudding, right? Or does the biblical story make the most sense of reality? And I'm going to live into that story. We comparison shop. We can't help ourselves. It's okay. It's normal. We should. We should. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be continuing to unpack this unfolding drama. And we find ourselves in uh, chapter 2 of that epic story this morning, the fall, which runs from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. But let's first review very quickly what we spoke about last week, chapter 1 of the story. God creates the world in in six days. He rests on the seventh day on day 6. God creates his image bearers, humanity. You know, that he, in days one, two, and three, he creates the, the, the sky, the heavens, he creates the seas, he creates 
the land. And in days four, five, and six, of course, he creates the inhabitants of those, of those spheres. He creates the birds. He creates uh, the fish. And, the, and then he creates the land animals. And then on day six, of course, he creates humans. And he creates them as his image bearers. We talked about that last week, what an image bearer meant to be. It meant it's royalty language, right? It means that you are sons and daughters of the king. means you're his lieutenants given to rule the world on his behalf to rule the world to order it to fill it with his love to fill it with his glory to fill it with his justice and his mercy and his benevolent goodness and as Eve and as Adam and as husband and as wife and as they married and had families and had kids as they as they were fruitful and multiplied, in ever-increasing circles, they would, in, they would grow and expand the human family upon the earth until the earth was filled with God's glory and the water as the waters covered the sea. As the earth was filled with God's glory as the waters covered the sea. Yes, Isaiah 11. Every story, of course, has some really bad news. Wouldn't be a real story if it didn't have bad news. I was six when the first movie of Star Wars came out. And my mom took me to the theater on 28th Street in Grand Rapids to go see it. Very first shot, right? The very first scene, the very first movie of Star Wars, which is actually episode four, and there's actually uh, three, three movies now, the prequels before that, but we didn't know that when it first came out, right? So episode four was actually episode one, called The New Hope. What's the first scene of Star Wars? And I'm six and a half years old. I'm just riveted because there's this massive ship that comes out of the darkness chasing Princess Leia's little cruiser, right? The bad news is that the last remaining hero gets captured by the bad guy, Darth Vader, and she's got the plans that's going to save the universe, and the bad guy just got her and got the plans, right? Really bad news. That's how, the movie, that's how that epic story starts, with really bad news. And unfortunately, as we move into Act 2, as we move into Chapter 2 of the story, <laughs> we get the really bad news. I have to be the one to tell you that we're the bad news. That the death sentence is written on us. <sighs> Genesis chapter 3 narrates how the image rebels against its king in treason and incurs the sentence of death and judgment for its willful disobedience, created to be the sons and daughters of the king, of the father king, created to be his lieutenant to rule the world on behalf of God in loyal faithfulness to him and love, we rebel. And we die. The sentence of death is pronounced upon us. Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Adam and Eve could 
Adam and Eve could eat of any tree in the garden, it said. Actually, Max, we have this up, Genesis 2. Here's the original command before the rebellion. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, right? This, this perfect place full of my presence, full of all the food you could possibly want, full of all the pleasures you could possibly dream of, full of all the beauty and the play and the joy. But just one thing, Adam, I ask of you, one thing I command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in the middle of the garden. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. One thing, right? You have the whole world given to you. Everything is yours, Adam. Except for one tree. And if you touch it, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, God brings Eve to Adam. We had the first human marriage, unbelievable. Naked and no shame together. And we don't know how long later this takes place after their wedding. But then we read this in Genesis 3. Maybe it's just a few hours later. Maybe it's just a few days later. Maybe it's a few weeks later. I know they were living forever. Maybe it was years later. We don't know. But then we read this. Here's the temptation that comes in with the serpent. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I'll stop right there. Hold on just a second. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that they couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? No, what did he say? You can only eat of one tree. You see the twist already here, right? So he's already twisted God's word. What else has he done here? Did God actually say that? Doubt, right? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. Whose word is true now? Two competing stories. Is the Creator King a truthful Speaker, or does the serpent know the truth? Maybe, maybe this God, who we thought was so loving and so good, maybe is a tyrant. Ah, that's right, he made us the lieutenant, but he's the general. He's the father, he is the king, he gets to be the one that's in charge. Maybe he can't be trusted. The seeds of doubt. For God knows that when you eat of it, verse 5, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
There it is. You could be like God. I could be the one calling the shots. Why should we report to him? Why should we do what he wants to do? Why should we build his kingdom? Why shouldn't we build our own kingdoms? How can we trust this? Do we know we can trust him? Is he trustworthy? Verse 6, so when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her. Apparently it was quite silent, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Serpent has suggested here discontent. That God's not trustworthy. Maybe he's a tyrant. We should be calling our own shots. We should become like God. Then we will know. Adam and Eve's decision, of course, unleashed catastrophic consequences. Let's read this in Genesis 3, 13 to 19. There are always consequences to rebellion. There are always consequences to not trusting God. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Perpetual war between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. We'll come back to this in just a moment. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 17. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, Instead of listening to me, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall break bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These are the catastrophic consequences of the rebellion. For choosing not to trust the trustworthy God. I already mentioned the perpetual war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The rest of the story is going to be this perpetual war between humanity and the serpent, between humanity and evil, between humanity and Satan. To read it carefully again, verse 15. In this war, 
Humanity shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's interesting. What does a strike to the head of a serpent do? It's fatal. But in the human's bruising the head and crushing the serpent, what does the serpent do to the human? Right? And if it's a poisonous serpent, is it fatal? It is. So we have this shadowy promise that there will be someday a human who crushes the serpent, kills it, kills Satan. And simultaneously, as he's crushing the serpent, he will be struck and he will die. If you've been around the church at all for any length of time, that promise carries much. What are the other consequences? Childbearing becomes laden with anxiety and pain. Remember that the earth, the man and the woman are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. And now childbearing becomes this anxiety-ridden, pain-driven even ending in death at times. In fact, we know from Jesus' day, from the Roman imperial day, that one out of 50 women died in childbirth. One out of 50. It was terrifying. The gift of sexual intimacy becomes terrifying for the woman because it may be your death sentence. There was no such thing as family planning back in 3,000 years ago, Moses' day, right? There's no such thing as Western medicine 3,000 years ago. Childbearing becomes this anxious, painful, terrifying ordeal. Another consequence, the lack of intimacy between man and woman. This is verse 16. Once supposed to be together, right, as teams, woven together to rule the world together for God. Husband and wife, man and woman, Together, the image of God, verse 1, 26 and 27 of the epic story, Act 1. Now, tension, seeking to rule over each other. Lack of intimacy, lack of trust, brokenness, right? Struggle in the relationship. Verses 17, 19. The ground that wasn't supposed to give all this glorious food is cursed. Now the man has to work, labor by the sweat of his brow to even eat and provide food for his family. Whereas before, everything just dripped with food, right? So much food you couldn't even, you couldn't even close to eat all of it. And as there was food, and as we had children, and as childbearing was a joy and sex, sexual intimacy was a, was, a, was a joy and pleasure with full intimacy, 
we've filled the earth with God's glory, that whole thing has just come grinding to a halt. God slows and thwarts down his own mission. Why? To give time to redeem humanity. To give time to fix this mess. By the way, the man listened to the voice of his wife. Instead of listening to God, he listened to his wife. Can you imagine their relationship henceforth, right? Eve, you were supposed to speak truth. Eve, we were supposed to not eat of that tree. Eve, why did you give in to the serpent? Adam, where were you? Could have stepped in, could have helped me out. Can they even trust each other? No. Partially, maybe. Verse 19, death. Death is another consequence of the fall, right? Adam, you're dust, and to dust you shall return. I told you you would die. You didn't believe me. I told you. I warned you. To listen to me and obey my word is life. To rebel against me is death. I warned you. And then finally we see, we didn't read it, Adam and, Eve have get, or Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, exiled from God's presence with a flaming sword guarding the way so that they cannot go back in and be with God and eat of the tree of life and live forever. I hate the bad news. I always hate the bad news. And the bad news is so bad It's so dark, right? I was like, why do I have to be the one to share the bad news? Right? We can't understand the good news of the story if you don't understand the bad news. You can't understand how good the good news is if you don't understand how bad the bad news is. And so while I wish we could skip act two of the story, we can't. And we dare not. So bear with me. Hang in there. Because it gets worse. See, the fall just doesn't starts in Genesis 3. But the next seven chapters, Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, show how it gets worse. Show what happens when sin, like a tsunami, is unleashed upon the world. So that was Genesis 3, the fall. But then Genesis 4, we have the first murder. Cain and Abel, right? We have the first polygamous marriage. It was supposed to be one man, one woman, husband and wife. Now Lamech decides to have several wives. It's not supposed to be that way. By the end of chapter 4, we have the first vengeance murder. The first vengeance killing. Moving on to Genesis 5, we have Adam's genealogy. And after every person is mentioned, it says, and then he died. 
And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Hammering home the point that death rules over the sons and daughters of men. And that brings us to Genesis 6-9, which is the story of Noah and the ark. Now, you probably learned it. Well, I'm getting older. I learned Noah and the ark as like a third grader with a flannel graph, right? And it was a happy story. Noah and the ark is a happy story. All the animals come two by two. They come to the ark. They go into the ark, ride the waves. And then when it's all done... They come out and the animals come two by two out of the ark. <laughs> it's actually a fascinating, fun story for kids. But in light of the epic story, it's, it's a disaster. Why? Why the flood? Why the ark? Don't disconnect Noah and the ark from the unfolding drama of the epic story. Where does it fit in the epic story? Sin has gone viral. By Genesis 6. Let's read Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Max, do you have that for us? Why the flood? This is the reason for the flood. This is the reason for two by two, the animals go into the ark. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Remember that the earth was supposed to be filled with God's glory. It's the exact same verb. There's an allusion here back to Genesis 1. Humanity was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with... God's glory. By Genesis 6, what have we managed to fill the world with? Violence. Have we been successful in the mission that God set us out to do? No, we've done the exact opposite. And so God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Remember, God sees the earth in Genesis 6. In uh, chapter 1, uh, day 6, he says, and God saw all, the, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's the exact same language. God saw the earth, and behold, it was all corrupted. For flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That's the reason for two by two. God's going to wipe it all out. In judgment, the earth is so filled with angry tyrants. Humanity has become warmongering tyrants, stained the world with blood. And this is all that there is left that can be done. Except for one man. And his name is Noah, right? Now we know the story. Now we can connect it into the story. One righteous man. And God takes a boat, and God puts Noah and his family in the boat. And two by two, the animals come, the animals of the original first creation. One male, one female of each kind get into the boat. The flood comes, destroys everything, right? The ark floats up. There's a little mini creation preserved in that boat. Right? So the waters come destroy everything, but waters do two things at the once. Water here is simultaneously destroying and cleansing. 
So everything's wiped out. The waters flood the whole world. The ark has a miniature creation um, ensemble inside of it. Then the waters recede. Everything's cleansed. And the ark comes down. And everybody disembarks. And we're starting again. A new creation. A renewed world. God's going to try again. In fact, the flood is depicted as a decreation of the original creation. You look at all the language of Genesis 6 through 9. And Adam is depicted as a second Adam. And the world after the flood is depicted as a new creation. He's called the image of God. Genesis 9, verse 6. Let's look at this, actually. Genesis 9, 1 to 3. This is after the flood. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, look at this, language from Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you see that? Same exact language of Genesis 1, spoken to Adam and Eve. And fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps upon the ground and all the fish of the sea. That's all language from Genesis 1. Into your hands they are delivered. <clears throat> every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. In Genesis 9, verse 6, it says that Noah is the image of God. We've pushed restart. Noah is a second Adam. God's going to try again. God hasn't given up on his project. Plan A is still plan A. Maybe this time we'll get it right. But just give it a second chance. I'm sure we can do it this time. God relaunches his mission of new creation. Noah is a second Adam. It's going to get it done, right? So just one more thing. Let me just go back to the flood then. The flood in this unfolding drama of epic story from creation to new creation, and the New Testament picks up on this several times, the flood is a picture of what's going to happen at the end. It provides the pattern of what's going to happen at the end. There's going to be a universal judgment and there's going to be a universal cleansing and there's going to be a humanity that's brought through and populates that new world, that resurrected world. The flood provides a pattern of new creation renewal, judgment and renewal. problem is that Noah also falls. We don't get out of Genesis 9 before he sins in drunkenness. See, unfortunately, the problem is not us trying harder. If we could just do a few do's and don'ts, a little bit of behavior modification, Try harder this next time. We'll get it right. 
The problem now is us. The problem is our heart. The problem is not that we just do bad things, but that we are bad. Max, do you have Genesis 6, 5? This is before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is the reason for all the violence on the earth. The human heart, right? You see that? I'm not trying to be offensive. We need the doctor to diagnose correctly the disease, right? Even if it's bad news, we need the bad news. We need to know the truth so that we know what the solution can be, what the, what the scalpel is going to do to try to fix the problem. It's not that we just need to try harder. It's that our hearts are sick with the cancer of sin. But look at this now, Genesis 8, 21. And Max, I think this is the last one. This is the human heart after the flood. After the flood. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, the flood did not fix the problem. The flood revealed the fundamental problem. Noah and his family carried this cancer of sin in the ark with them unknowingly in the very process of being delivered. The root issue is the heart. It's broken. It's diseased. You see, the heart biblically is the seat of emotions, affections, and desires. And the scripture is telling us that our heart is busted. It doesn't work right. We should love God, want God, want to know God, want to please God, want to obey God, want to trust God. But we find in our heart, we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want God. We don't want to trust him. We don't want to yield to his authority. We don't want to obey him. We want nothing to do with him. And how do you fix that? How do you fix a broken desire factory? The heart wants what it wants. You can't just go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm hungry, I want some food. And you can say, don't be hungry. Does it work? When my boys are ravenously hungry and they open up the fridge and there's no food in there, you can't just say, don't be hungry. They're hungry. The heart wants what it wants. How, how is God going to fix this mess? How is God going to fix the heart? Right? Because out of the heart is all these manifestations of rebellion. 
It's not that if we could just fix racism, we'll be all set. If we could just be, if we could just fix gender inequality. If we could just fix, you know, if we could just get everybody educated. No, the problem is here. And how is God going to fix that? I told you it was bad news. Let's be honest in conclusion. Genesis 3 to 11 is dark and really hard to read. It's really hard to preach. Our first parents' rebellion and the consequences that flow from it stagger the mind and discourage the heart. Look at our world today. What a heartbroken mess. And yet we need to face this reality. We need to feel this bad news in our bones before we can truly appreciate the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who died and was raised to restore us back to God's favor. But that's for another part of the story. Second, Genesis 3 and 11 tells us this, that all of us are image bearers born in rebellion against God. We all have the evil human heart apart from God's grace in Christ. We have met the enemy and the enemy is us. We are all slaves of sin. Finally, it is squarely amid all this black darkness, right, and hopelessness that there is, in fact, a ray of hope. God did promise in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that Satan would be destroyed forever. The human will die. Simultaneously will die. But Satan will be defeated. Plan A is still plan A. And God will find a way. Yet the story will take several darker twists and turns before all is accomplished. The serpent has no intentions of giving up the world he has usurped without a fight. Let's pray. Lord, the bad news is really bad. Today is not a fun day to be a preacher. And yet, Lord, we know we need the doctor to tell us the truth. We need to know what the diagnosis is before we can accept the cure. Lord, the news is really bad, but we know that the good news that's coming is really, really good. So we wait to see how your story will unfold when the offspring of the woman crushes the serpent. Lord, I don't know where there are people that are in this audience who've been so patient with me this morning listening are at. Lord, would you do something in their hearts? Would you draw them unto yourself 
in and through this bad news? Would you help them to see that they aren't supposed to try harder? Would you help them to acknowledge the reality of their situation before you? Would you help them to stop trying and just come to you in brokenness? and ask you to fix their heart. In Jesus' name, amen.